Welcome to The Last Month at the Federal Circuit. On this podcast, we typically look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. But today we're going to look at amendments to the Federal Circuit rules, which went into effect in March. To guide listeners through some of the complexity of these new rules, we have two guests, Finnegan partner Jason Romrell and Finnegan associate Ryan McDonald. Thank you both for joining us. Jason, let me start with you. Can you first tell us how the Federal Circuit rules relate to the federal rules of appellate procedure? Sure. So the federal rules of appellate procedure govern procedure in all of the United States courts of appeals. They were originally adopted by the United States Supreme Court in 1967. So they've been with us for quite some time, but they are regularly reevaluated and multiple changes have been made to those over the years. Uh, Today, There's a Judicial Conference Committee on Rules of Practice and Procedure. It's often referred to as the Standing Committee that can recommend changes to the Judicial Conference to the rules of appellate procedure. And then the Judicial Conference will in turn recommend those changes to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court then considers those proposals. And if it concurs with the recommended changes, the Supreme Court will officially promulgate the revised rules by order. And they have to do that before May 1st to take effect no earlier than December 1st of the same year. And during that time, Congress can enact legislation to reject, modify, or defer that pending rule. Now, in addition to this uh, system of, of federal rules of appellate procedure, each circuit appellate court can implement its own local rules of practice. And the federal circuit is no different. It has implemented its own local rules, which we refer to as the Federal Circuit Rules of Practice. Great. Thank you for that clarification. Ryan, can you tell us what what prompted the Federal Circuit to amend its rules? What did that process look like? Yes. So as a matter of course, the Federal Circuit continuously monitors how its rules are applied in practice and then also how the rules are perceived by the members of the Federal Circuit Bar. Um, And there's actually a few committees that have been set up both um, within the federal circuit and outside the federal circuit that that sort of monitor these rules as well and then propose amendments to these rules. Uh, The the first is the federal circuit's advisory committee, whose members are selected by the chief judge of the federal circuit. And then the second is the federal circuit bar association's rules committees. um, And those members are, are picked by the federal circuit bar association. Both of these committees are made up of members of the Federal Circuit Bar and include a good mix of attorneys practicing at law firms and the government and then also in-house at at different corporations. In terms of sort of how this particular set of rule changes came about, the court actually initially proposed a set of rule amendments back in September of 2022 with the goal of implementing the amendments in December of that year. But after the sort of typical public comment period that happens anytime changes are made to the Federal Circuit's rules, the court decided to defer adoption of the amendments in light of some of the public comments that it received. Then in January of 2023 this year, the court announced actually a a new set of proposed amendments that are separate from the deferred amendments and stated that it anticipated the amendments would become effective in March of this year. Uh, At that time, the court also issued a statement saying that some of the previously deferred amendments may also be implemented in March, but did not indicate which of those previously deferred amendments would be included. 
And then finally, um, March 1st of this year, the new amendments went into effect and they included all of the January 2023 amendments and a good chunk of the, the previously deferred amendments. Okay. Thank you, Ryan. And we're going to get to those uh, amendments in a second. But Jason, can you first talk generally about the importance of you know, following these court rules? What, what's at stake for those who, who get it wrong? Well, there are certain timing rules that reflect jurisdictional requirements. And if you violate those rules, you can lose your right to appeal. Uh, additionally, violating other rules can result in your appeal being dismissed. But most of the rules we are going to discuss today don't involve such dramatic consequences. Uh, but that said, they are still very important to understand and for practitioners to be aware of. The entire purpose of an appeal to the federal circuit really is to convince a panel of judges or even the entire court in a non-bank petition or a non-bank case that your position is correct and credible. And failure to follow the court's rules really sends the wrong message to those judges and could undermine the credibility that you're working so hard to establish before the federal circuit. Now, the federal circuit, it's, it's a unique forum with an entirely different set of rules and briefing compared to district courts or the Patent Trial and Appeal Board or the International Trade Commission. So it's really critical to have counsel who is not only very familiar with the federal circuit's unique rules, but also understands the nuances and intricacies of briefing and arguing before the court. Absolutely. Let's get into some of the rule changes. Let's start with changes to initial filings made in an appeal. Sure. So when we're talking about initial filings, we're talking about things like the certificate of interest and the docketing statement that must be filed at the beginning of each appeal. For the certificate of interest, and this is rule 47.4, previously there was a requirement for parties to list in the certificate of interest any cases that are related to the current appeal. And the rules define related cases as ones that will directly affect or be directly affected by the federal circuit's decision in the appeal, along with any prior appeals of the same case. For practitioners who use the court's sort of standard certificate of interest form, which is form nine, you would list related cases in box five of that form, and you would include the case name and number. With this uh, set of amendments, the court has changed the related cases requirement and now makes the parties file a separate notice of related case information at the same time that the certificate of interest is filed. The new notice now must include three things. The first is a list of the related cases, including the case name and number. The second is the name of all the parties that were ever involved, both past and present in those cases. And then the third is the names of all law firms, partners, and associates that appeared in those related cases. This separate notice for related case information only needs to be filed once with the court and then updated as needed as information on that form changes. And then to make this easy for the parties, the court has uploaded a new separate notice of related case information standard form which is Form 9A to its website. And the court has also updated its standard certificate of interest form, Form 9, to account for this amendment. And Box 5, which is where you would list related cases, is now a, a yes or no box that you check as to whether there are any related cases. And then the box refers to the need to file a separate notice if there are related cases. For the docketing statement, and this is Rule 47.6, the court now requires parties to use its standard docketing statement form, Form 26, that's on its website. 
as opposed to a party using any sort of docketing statement form that it, that it would come up with. There's been no updates to Form 26 itself, though. Um, the, the rules now just require that the parties use it. Great. Thank you, Ryan. What, what about briefs and appendices? What significant changes should we know about those categories? There were several changes and clarifications to those rules governing briefs and appendices. So parties have for quite some time been required to include a statement of the standard of review in their briefs. The Federal Circuit amended Rule 28A9 to clarify uh, that parties are in fact required to include the statement of the standard of review, and it must appear with its own heading, but that section can appear either within the argument section itself or immediately preceding the argument section. Federal Circuit Rule 28C clarifies a little bit uh, on the addendum requirements for Federal Circuit briefs. It makes clear that the addendum to the brief must include any rehearing opinions or orders that support the underlying judgment. And if there are any patents or patent applications that issue on appeal, the addendum needs to include those as well. There were also some clarifications and changes made to Federal Circuit Rule 32A3 uh, regarding uh, the cover of appeal briefs. So uh, the language here was modified to make clear that parties are required to include the language of one or more exemplary patent claims on the inside cover of the brief. This rule was previously found in Federal Circuit Rule 28, but it was moved to Federal Circuit Rule 32A3 and modified to make clear that there only needs to be one or more exemplary patent claims, uh, not necessarily all the patent claims at issue on that front cover. Uh, Additionally, uh, the Federal Circuit updated its rules on the number of copies of briefing that are required and added a a service requirement. So Federal Circuit Rule 31B was amended to make clear that in appeals where all the parties are represented by counsel, an additional copy of each paper brief must be provided by the filer of that brief to the other parties uh, in the case. Similarly, with the joint appendix, which is the uh, document that includes the record for the court to evaluate on appeal, uh, Federal Circuit Rule 30A3 was amended to make clear that you need to also serve a, a copy of that on on other all other counsel of record in cases where um, all the parties are represented by counsel. Additionally, Federal Circuit Rule 30A1. A3 was modified to make clear that patents and patent applications at issue on an appeal should also appear in that joint appendix in their entirety. Okay, so lots of rules on briefs and appendices. Ryan, what about settlement discussions and dismissals? Sure. So the the first set of amendments that kind of falls in this category are to Rule 33, which is about appeal conferences and settlement discussions. Previously, Rule 33 required that after the briefing had been completed and by the time the joint appendix is filed, parties had to certify that they had met and discussed settling the appeal. Um, The court has now eliminated this requirement and instead simply encourages the parties to keep the court informed about any ongoing settlement discussions. And this is, of course, with the caveat that the, the parties don't need to divulge any confidential information to the court. 
the court in Rule 33 also continues to encourage parties to use the court's mediation program. Next, jumping to Rule 42, which is about voluntarily dismissing appeals, the Federal Circuit has added a new Form 18 that parties can use when filing a joint stipulation of voluntary dismissal. Before this, this form came into being, the parties would typically file joint stipulations of dismissal with varying amounts of information, and some would span several pages. But this new form exactly tracks what information the rule requires to be included in the dismissal and has two boxes, one for listing the case numbers that are going to be voluntarily dismissed, and then a second box that indicates how costs are to be assigned. Um, so this new form is a, a great way to, for parties to save time and effort by using the, the new streamlined form. Okay, a lot of helpful information. Jason, what about oral arguments? So first, the Federal Circuit modified its uh, Rule 34D and the accompanying Form 32 on notifying the clerk of conflicts with oral argument. The rule is now clear that even if counsel has no scheduling conflict with oral argument, they're still required to notify the court and file Form 32, which will let the, the clerk know whether or not there are any conflicts with potential or oral argument dates. Uh, additionally, the Federal Circuit modified its Rule 34E to explain and provide a little more clarity on the limitation on the number of arguing counsel on an appeal. So the Federal Circuit made clear in its latest amendments that no more than one counsel may argue on behalf of each party or on behalf of parties represented by the same counsel or by counsel from the same firm. The Federal Circuit also clarified its rules to require parties to bring copies of each brief and the appendix to oral argument. In particular, the Federal Circuit uh, amended its Rule 34E3 to require that all arguing counsel must have a copy of each brief and appendix in the case, including what's been filed by the other party, close at hand during the argument in either paper form or electronic form so they can easily access it during the argument. Additionally, the Federal Circuit amended its practice note to encourage parties to bring paper copies of each brief and appendix to the oral argument. Now, one would think that this would be a standard procedure for anyone arguing with the Federal Circuit to have the briefs and appendices at, at hand. Uh, anyone who has been before the Federal Circuit knows that the uh, questioning is typically quite active and one needs to be prepared to refer to the briefs and appendices. But apparently that message wasn't getting across quite the way the Federal Circuit had hoped. And so they've modified their rules to make it a requirement. Okay. Well, we've gone over a lot of rules. Ryan, are there any other rules listeners should be aware of that maybe didn't fit neatly into the categories we've discussed so far? Sure. There's a, there's a number of other sort of miscellaneous rules that practitioners should be aware of. The, the first is to Rule 25, and this amendment decreases the number of paper copies that a party must submit for briefs related to panel rehearing or uh, petitions for rehearing on Bonk. So now only three copies of a petition for panel rehearing must be submitted to the court, and then 13 copies of a petition for rehearing on Bonk or 26 copies of briefing and appendix related to a granted rehearing on Bonk must be submitted. And then the court has also implemented or aligned Federal Circuit Rules 35 and Federal Circuit Rules 40 with 
this change in the, the number of, of paper copies that need to be submitted. And another sort of miscellaneous amendment is an amendment to Rule 26, which now codifies the day after Thanksgiving is an official court holiday. Court was typically closed on both Thanksgiving and the day after Thanksgiving, but this rule change makes the, the court's closure on the day after Thanksgiving official. Um, and now that the day after Thanksgiving is a, a legal holiday, any deadlines, court deadlines that fall on this day are now due on the next business day. Okay, a rule we can all be thankful for. Ryan, Jason, thank you very much for being on the podcast. You've been listening to a podcast from Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. We've been speaking with Finnegan partner Jason Romrell and Finnegan associate Ryan McDonald. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.